Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Travis. We're Southern men de-reconstructing the South. We're going to review the sermon by R.L. Dabney called Parental Responsibility. So going into this sermon, uh, Travis, what, do you, what, what, are, what are your thoughts before we get into any of it? What, what, are you, what were you expecting before you read this? So I was basically expecting a sermon talking about how to rear children and the, the, the responsibilities of the parents to raise godly children. And it was much deeper than that, to say the least. So what was your expectations of the uh, sermon before you read it? So my expectations coming in, I I thought it would be another, you know, raise your kids right, teach them kind of a deal. The usual the usual suspects. I really didn't expect much. Um I I was very uh taken off guard with the not just the depth, but also the the the, the poetic presentation. I think that goes a long way to really letting it hit home. And I and I I'm not much for a sermon just being poetic. But when the truth is delivered in a very poetic means, it's much more powerful in a sense cuz you have not just the the the, the verbiage to let it light your brain up, so to speak, but it's also delivering that that hard gut punch that you need that conviction. I really was convicted by this sermon, the way that I've failed as a father with my kids. I, I was not expecting that kind of a a hit, frankly. Yeah, normally, you know, today's sermons is more do better and try harder, and this is more like you can't do enough because it's, you know, it's all by God's grace. Yeah, sure, there was so, there was some elements of you know, do better and try harder, but ultimately it was it was pointing to Christ. One as the example, but also as uh, parents are are used as means, you know, for the children, and uh, ultimately, you know, for Christian parents, it's Christ's work and not really yours. And the other part of this is it reminds me much of Doug Wilson's book, Future Men where he's really hitting home the a power and authority that a father has over his over his sons although Dabney's not specific to father or mother he's speaking generally as parents but the weight behind what he's saying from the word is there and it hits home to what you're actually doing on a regular basis and we'll get into the specifics and bringing it back to um, how this relates to the Dixie Polis is, well, he goes in to talk about the the authority that the parental government has over the um, the children. I'll get into this a little bit more later, but um, it, it's he puts it in such a way that it kind of challenges you. But also it um, enlightens you on some areas that we might not have thought about, about just how powerful the parental influence is over the child. Yeah, and that that's 
part of the gut punch is you realize that some of the things that you do as a like for me as a father, some of the things that I do really affect my child in ways that I didn't realize. And it has to do with the amount of authority that I have over them. But this will all be brought out in the sermon. Uh, I suppose we want to get into the passages that he uses. Mm, yeah, well, you, you take one and I'll take the other. Okay, uh, well, the first one that he uses is Malachi four six, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And uh, the next one was from Luke one seventeen, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, uh, do you happen to know the uh, background behind the Malachi passage? Um, it's kind of a book that, let, let, let's face it, most modern Christians probably have never read. So, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and Malachi was the last of the minor prophets. And the entire book is a condemnation, really, to the leadership of the church. Uh, which were the, which was the priesthood under the old covenant and there's a few things that god really digs into them about a- at this point in israel's history I- israel as a nation had been steeped in sin for a while and the first chapter was god condemning the people of levi specifically and if you remember the levites were the prophets the ones that that did the sacrifices on the altar and condemned Judah as well. And the specific charge that was given to them was for having contempt for the sacrifices and table of the Lord. So in chapter 2, I'm going to read a couple of verses. This is verses 13 through 16. It says, And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offering and receives them gladly from your hand. Yet you ask for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness to you and your wife of your youth. You've acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully. And do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. So Dabney actually opens up with this point. Is that God expects us to have godly offspring. And the specific issue that was cited, as we saw in these previous verses... Why this wasn't happening is because the husbands of Israel, of Levi and Judah specifically, were dealing treacherously with their wives, meaning they were being unfaithful. And this disrupts the wife's function of providing good children, not only in birthing the child, but also in raising the child and nurturing the child. Second point here is that hindering your wife is seen as pouring tears, weeping, and groaning on the altar of sacrifice 
and God sees this as a direct attack on the sacrifices given by the people of God. And in the Old Testament, the, the, the Levites were the priests of God, but in the New Covenant, we're all, as men, prophet, kings, and priests of our home. And when we deal treacherously with our wives, we actually interrupt that sacrificial life that we're supposed to live. And we actually hinder our wives when we deal treacherously with them. And this could come in the form of pornography or going out and finding another woman. Following this in chapter 4, however, this is where Malachi speaks of the coming of the day, uh, the, the coming days of Elijah the prophet, who will remind the people of their duties before the Lord. And this includes this this dealing rightly with the wife of your youth and will in his instructions turn the heart of the fathers and the children toward each other and that's where Luke 1 comes in so Luke 1 comes in after uh, 400 years of silence and, and it opens up with the um, talking about the, the coming John the Baptist right so we have this 400 years of silence begins with a with a talking out and a hearkening back to the um raising faithful offspring and then it starts with the with a levitical priest um basically having a son to be a forerunner to the messiah so it the 400 years starts with the Levitical priesthood. I mean, they actually didn't realize that connection there, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it starts off with Zechariah. He is the first person to receive a message from the heavens, from the you know, a, a message from the sky in 400 years, because God was silent from that last prophecy in Malachi, all the way to when he says, Zacharias, you will have a son, and he will be John." Um, and then, ironically, God shuts him up. So this so. would actually be, in a sense, the redemption of the Levitical line, because it was uh, silence was brought to the Levites 400 years before, and then at the end of this period, now comes the man who precedes the Son of God. Correct. Yes. Um, it, it's it's just weird how how you know. Uh, God doesn't often repeat himself, but everything he does seems to rhyme and has some kind of type and shadow along with it. He ends off by saying, I want to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And that's the last thing he says until he gets to Zacharias, who after 400 years, which, you know, in numerology, 400 is like uh, like a probationary period. You know, 40 is a probationary period, and 40 is, you know, that times 10. Um, so then he silences Zacharias for 40 weeks because that's the typical gestation period of a human, um, a human baby. So it's just kind of cool type and shadows. Maybe I just went on a, off on a rabbit trail. There. No, it's it's good stuff, and I think it actually ties in with this because in a in a sense the the Levites were, uh, they had a parental role for the rest of Israel. And this is something that we as men assume as fathers and as husbands. We have this 
function as a priest in our home. And the redemption of the priesthood is the turning of the hearts. You know, this is back in Malachi, but it's turning the hearts of the father, the hearts of the husband to his wife, and then the turning of the of the father to his children. So this there's a pattern here that God's establishing that first you take care of the marital covenant, and then you take care of the offspring. And when you correct the marital covenant. This follows through to this correcting of the relationship between the father and the son. Then also the the impact that the parents have on the offspring to to teach and train how the uh, how they are to walk, you know, raise a child in the way that it should go, and it will not depart from it. Um, yeah. So whenever the priest of the home, the you know the males of the home, the priest train new priest to take upon the priesthood and then it's it should be you know in a, a sequential order i mean granted we see within the levitical line that there's plenty of bad priests that weren't raised right right so this training up of the next generation of priests uh, this actually flows a perfect segue uh, into the nature of the parental relationship which is the second segment of this of the sermon dabney here is trying to make a few points but it centers around the reproduction and how children are offspring of their parents but he goes into specifically what that means and the implications of it. the first part of this Dabney gets into reproduction as the propagation of image bearers just that in and of itself and talks about how humans have been gifted this in contrast to the angels. He goes into this by saying, quote, For the bliss and glory of the elect angels, there is no multiplication. The only increase within their reach is that arithmetical addition, which may arise out of their individual progress in knowledge, love, and happiness. But Gabriel cannot multiply his happiness and transmit it to beloved offspring of his own likeness. But the glory of divine beneficence toward the human race appears in this, that the parents, without alienating anything of their own immortality, immortality, are able to multiply immortalities in ever-widening and progressive numbers. It is, enough, it is enough for us to know that God does empower human parents for this amazing result, the origination, out of nothing, of a new being, and that a rational and moral and that a rational immortal spirit it raises a man nearer to the almighty creator in his supreme prerogative as master of all things than anything else that is done by creatures on earth or in heaven angels are not thus endued so he's tracing this lineage of the imago dei from us as parents to our children showing how this expression of God's attributes is multiplied through human generation, the creation of a new image bearer. No, not not only just a an image bearer, but an immortal image bearer. For good or bad, that soul that is created through that parental union <clears throat> lives forever. And what the parents did actually matters because it is the basis of literally everything for this new image bearer. So you have to live with the consequences for good or bad 
hope, hopefully for good if we're Christians, that it is going to be a foundational part of that being's existence throughout all eternity is that that foundation that was laid by the parents at childhood. Thinking about that is a, is that's heavy. It's very heavy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've never actually thought about it like that because, you know, in, in, in most Christian cultures, especially in a, um, or not most Christian cultures, but within American Christian culture, there doesn't seem to be a lot of effect on what we do today actually matters. But if I'm reading this right, Dabney's arguing that what we do matters even more than we could ever think of. And it's all tied back to the fact that you're actually imaging God. You're either doing a good job at imaging God or you're not. As image bearers of God, we can't help but imitate him. so, and that was the role of Adam, our federal head. He started this train movement, and um, quite possibly, Dabney argues that if he would have not have sinned during that probationary period, he would have been lifted from his mutable position into a permanent adoption of life, uh, where he would possibly have raised his posterity in the same way, and that we wouldn't have been fallen, but rather good. However, as Dabney puts it, he was speaking of Satan, that he wanted to poison the well at one instant so that there could be no more image bearers, or or rather not pure, holy image bearers, but rather a marred, fallen image bearer. Instead of Adam propagating a holy race of people, he, he would have only been able to to replicate marred beings um, because he himself is marred. Um, but Dabney has this wonderful quote, and um, it was it was indeed the infinite refinement of malice, which he taught one of his heathen servants to cherish. When he inspired the Roman despot to wish that all the people of Rome had but one neck, that he might decapitate it all at one stroke. Thus Satan sat that humanity had but one head, and by poisoning the spring head, he would at once poison the whole stream in it all. It's until it disembogged its innumerable drops. Each drop is a flood, a lost soul, into the oceans of eternity. Thus it is the malignant perversion of God's plan of benevolence that every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of existence, the deadly disease of sin. So at the end right there, Dabney says it's the same way that Adam transferred sin to to his offspring so we condemn offspring to death by one by creating them bringing them into this world as sinners that's deep if you think about it because the one person that most people love you know and would give up basically their life for literally would give up their life for um, we've transferred this disease of sin and death to them. So I, I actually really like that word disembogged. Uh, it I had to I had to look that up when I first read it. Uh, it basically means to flow or come forth from. And that that goes back to what you were saying about he's trying to hit the beginning of mankind so that everyone would a- afterwards would be fallen, and he was successful in that, but. That success goes further to Christ's glory. 
which is a, a whole other topic, but it's it affects our parentage. It affects our understanding that what we've passed down to our children are not only the good things that of being an image bearer, but also the bad things that we sin. Their sin is a carryover from us. So you spoke earlier of Adam being our federal head. And had he not sinned, he would have continued to produce children who were holy. But instead he did sin. So Dabney actually quotes the Westminster, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They sinned in him and fell with him. This is further supported by Genesis 5.3, which states that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. This is juxtaposed to Genesis 1.27, where Adam was made in God's image and after God's likeness. So the Bible is actually drawing this delineation between Adam being made in the image of God and us being made in Adam's image. It's not that we don't still have the Imago Dei. It's that we have the Imago Dei plus a fallen nature. Our our nature is sinful. So he gets from there. He establishes first that you know, we hand down attributes, this immortality to our children, and then we hand down sin to our children. And he draws this line between spiritual spiritual sickness, as he calls it, and physical sickness and he's, he he goes as far as to say that a parent, uh, fathers who neglect the spiritual duty that they have are a monster with a heart harder than a wild boar this is because he, the father would have to ignore the fact that quote it was from your own blood the sufferer drew the poison so he draws this parallel he gives an anecdote of Napoleon who despite being a scourge on Europe had sent his own doctor to ensure that his son didn't suffer from stomach cancer and he says how can you old Christian fail to bring your child to the great physician of souls to be healed of the deadly contagion you have conveyed upon him if the love of a pagan parent to their child is so great, why would a Christian who is aware of the sin they pass to their children neglect the healing of their, their children's souls? He ends this portion by commenting on the inconsistency of godless parents, such as Napoleon, who care for their children's earthly problems but disregard the spiritual ones. And he calls even those people who are unregenerate to repent of dealing with their children treacherously. Right. I mean, I think that's a good segue into the next part about the um, the authority of the parents that they have over them. Um, we have the authority to um, bring them to the physician of Christ. I mean, ultimately, God uses parental authorities over them to... Um, as means to an end uh parents are there most of the time and they they are the ones that point them to christ um odds are that if you know a, a person is raised in a gospel 
preaching household, uh, the the children will follow in suit and remain Christian. Um, which, by, as an aside, uh, is is one of my probably my biggest um, hangups on the on the whole Presbyterian thing. I'm I'm, I'm a Baptist, but that they kind of um, leads me, you know, pushes me in towards towards the Presbyterian camp, even though I haven't crossed the threshold yet. The authority of a parent is, is, is you know, we, we have authority over an immortal soul. And the fact is, is we are accountable to what happens to them as parents. When, we, when we're rearing children, we, we need to be just and not act wickedly or unkind. Because that leaves a, a, a in, an impression. We, we ought not act unfair or unkind because, and, and actually do justice because everything that we do has an impression upon the child's soul that is there and they will remember it for a long time. So when we act just and, and do good things to our children or, you know, for our children, then they remember that and that's, that's you know, imprinted upon them versus if we are you know wicked or unkind or unfair or unjust to them even in matters of discipline and such that's that still leaves a leaves a mark on them and this kind of hails back to proverbs 22 6 train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he won't depart from it it's even if the child doesn't come to christ in salvation he will have that right standing in life that you've instilled in him where he has this foundation to rest upon now this is salvifically this becomes to a, a larger issue but the responsibility of the parent isn't to ensure their child is saved it's to ensure that their child is taken to Christ and that their children are pointed towards Christ. So Dabney actually starts this next section with a reference to Luke 12:48, where the principle of to whom much is given, much is required is spelled out by Christ. So Christ is telling a parable, and the passage goes, And the Lord said, Who then is faithful and wise manager? Whom is, who then is the, the faithful and wise manager? Whom is master will set over his house to give them their portion of food at the proper time blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes truly i say to you he will set him over all his possessions but if that servant says to himself my master is delayed in coming begins to beat the, the male and female servants to eat and to drink and get drunk the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready and act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Anyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the line he's drawing here is that because you've been granted this amazing ability, this, this legitimate power that you have over your children to propagate this new soul without their consent, by the way, without their even knowing or being able to have any say in it, you've propagated this child 
and now you have this responsibility this this image bearer has been given to you to care for and now the weight of that rests on you to deal rightly because you know how God expects you to deal with your children and he will hold you to account to how you treat your children and how you raise them would it be fair to also say that it um you know as as the proverb says a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children but more than that wouldn't it also be their worldly needs supplying it not just with spiritual ones because what we've been talking a lot about the spiritual but also the the material things that they need such as a good name um i think that's something that's kind of lacking in today's society is because we don't really think about our our surnames as much anymore because we live in much larger communities but well if we're we're honest we don't have communities we have yeah groups of people (laughs) that 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 is true i mean i was but sorry i didn't mean to cut in on you there i just no 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 you're you're fine i mean but in the South, the last name used to mean something. When 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 Doctor Dabney wrote this sermon, when he preached this sermon, a good name was an important thing. Uh, you didn't want to besmirch to besmirch your family name. Um, it, it takes decades to build up this this reputation for your family being a reliable family. So. Or, or, or to even, you know, have a name for yourself so you can make money, um, raise yourself up in, in social social circles. Um, and that's the responsibility of the parents because the children can't help how their father besmirches their name. Um, if their father's a drunkard, then they're going to be labeled as the children of a drunkard. And we don't think about that today. We don't think about that because... Well, for one thing, we, we often find the um, the man is optional within the house, so most children have their mother's maiden name anyways, or their mother's name because, anyways, that confusing <laughs> thing. <laughs> Yay, feminism! <laughs> Jacobins. Um, right? Oh, my, oh man, so so yeah, when, when, once I saw that uh, abolitionists were Jacobins <laughs> title, I'm like, oh wow, wow, yes, and, and everything's just been falling into place, but any squirrel, um, but you know, who your daddy is actually matters. If your daddy's a drunk, then more than likely your name is worthless around town, okay, or at least it used to be. Uh, now it's, you know, your daddy can be a drunk and no one knows who the heck your daddy is because he's freaking at the back of a crowded pool hall. But back in those days, there wasn't any hiding, you know, who the town drunk was. He goes into this, into his second point, where he talks about the way that you live your life. Your children are going to pick up on that. Now, a family name, what you're saying is true. The... The other side of this is that the children also have an impact on the name. And there is this reciprocal interaction between the children and the parents to establish their family's name in society. To establish a family name in the community. And it was a joint effort 
and with as i commented earlier the the dissolution of of a true community the name means nothing anymore you are just another person it doesn't matter who what your family name is is we're all just faceless nameless numbers in this fake and gay society <laughs> so um uh Sorry. no you're good so he he goes into this a little bit i i i think this is a i think this is a consequence of the way that we deal with society in general and this is goes into the name dixie polis right he quotes this is a quote from him later on in the sermon says some men it is known vainly prate their supposed obligation to leave the minds of their children independent and quote-unquote unbiased until they mature enough to judge and choose for themselves but a moment's thought shows this is this is as unlawful as impossible no man can avoid impressing his own practical principle on his child if he refrains from words he does he does it inevitably by his example the only way to prevent the quote-unquote dictation as it has been stigmatized is to banish the child absolutely from the parent society and protection and thus to be recreant to every duty of the parent now two points on this i'm reading a book after virtue by alistair mcintyre and he gets into uh he gets into a lot in the book it's a pretty dense book but i, I want to focus specifically on a couple of the products of the enlightenment which Dabney is actually indirectly attacking here. So the first point is that we've disconnected ourselves from our ultimate end. And Dabney is getting into this when talking about how we should point our children towards Christ. But the second part of this is that we've disconnected ourselves from what we are and from who we are. The more classic way of looking at mankind had to do with his roles in society. And there's this interaction between the individual, each individual of a community, and the and the commons of the community, as as it's called. And that interplay gives us context into how we should act. It gives us our rights and responsibilities, as we would call them. Well, here he's actually showing that. This neglect of your parental duties is actually getting in the way of you continuing on the traditions of your family name, of your community, of your your people. So the impact of this is that your children only learn indirectly by what you do. Now, this is impactful because that neglect has only intensified where there's an entire generation in the United States who by and large has not been around their, their, their parents at all except to perhaps be picked up in the evening and to see one another for an hour or so and then be put to bed. And this detachment from the older generation to the newer generation leaves our children aimless and it gives them nothing. And it, and it allows this nihilism to kind of set in where I don't even know that Dabney 
foresaw how bad it would get, even though he was very prophetic in some of his um, prognostication. I don't know that he saw that it would be this bad. I, didn't, I don't know that he saw it would snowball this bad. And this detachment is that ultimate hardness of our hearts toward our own children, that we wouldn't give them the salve of the great physician. Well, we can see it in, you know, in our culture that they hate kids. Um, they, they see kids as a burden instead of a blessing, uh, which, yeah, I mean, kids are, you know, a handful most of the time. But when you neglect the next generation, your society, your culture, your people are, are, are is going to crumble. Um, we must pass these traditions down to the next generation. And it actually takes a present parent to be there, not just a, a parent that just throws a tablet in front of, you know, the child. And, but actually raise them like, you know, my, my, my kind of, uh, uh, niches, you know, go plant a garden with your, you know, with your kid and actually teach them how to do what, you know, you know, people before him has done work with your kid, teach him a good work ethic and those kind of things. Um, you can't, you, you can't teach these things by just handing kids an iPad and, and, you know, telling them good luck, Sonny. But anyways, I digress. Well, it's what you're speaking of is the reintegration of virtue into parentage. You're not just teaching your children mathematics and science and uh, language. You're teaching them how to act and how to be in society. And when you disconnect them from that as a continual element of their life, you actually isolate them from society, which is actually being seen in some of the suicide rates, the rate of clinical depression being diagnosed, and, and the general prevalence of nihilism online. You can see this in Gen Y and Gen Z because they're... Their parents, the Gen Xers, and now the Millennials have essentially abandoned their children. It's someone else's responsibility to take care of my kids. That's their position. That, I mean, that kind of goes into, you know, why public schools are bad. Um, and, and I'm sure a brilliant man like Dabney talked about this. Um but, you know, maybe we'll have to dig a little bit deeper to see if he actually talked. I, I feel like there's a plug here. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we, we actually need to take back the reins. And this, this is why it's good. I see a lot of millennials doing this now, um, especially after the crazy bumble year of, that was 2020. Uh, most pe A lot of people are going to homeschool, and they're wanting to actually take part in their child's education but anyways, yeah, you know, after 2020, there was a uh, a huge uptick in in homeschooling, and I also see a lot with with um, especially in the Christian communities that they are wanting to pull finally pull the plug 
on these 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 Yankee institutions that we call public schools. Um, we actually want to have a hand and to be educated. Um, but anyways, you had something to say? Well, that that's the there's a rise in classical education, which goes back into the more ancient ways of educating. Uh, one of them in another book that I'm reading, incidentally, called Norms and Nobility, talks about the pedia of education. Pedia being the the concept of the simultaneous forming of a child's mind, body, and heart so that they would be a complete person. And so classical education includes all of the things simultaneously, and it also it often overlaps categories of education so that you're getting a much more cohesive way of understanding, dare I say, a more holistic education with not only you reading science and you reading through mathematic problems and dealing with grammar, but you're also dealing with some heavy philosophical questions. You're also expected to connect the dots between all of the different disciplines of science and language and mathematics with the reality that God is present in creation. And it's this Psalm 19, where the heavens declare the glory of God, right? That's the more classical education that's coming back. And I'm, I'm really excited for that. That's something that I'm going through with my children uh, here pretty soon. When they get a little older, it will be a, a more holistic education style. So basically, what, what, what we're seeing right now is, is within homeschooling. Uh, it, it's a return to the traditional way of educating children, um, especially in the South. Especially in the South, because the South never had public schools until after the war between the states. And if we can return to how we were educated post-1860 with community co-ops, churches having classes, um, private, you know, private Christian schools and such like that, then we can preserve our way of life and we can be better educated than what we what we're seeing in this public school system. But it, it requires parents getting the reins because right now so many Christians are outsourcing their authority over to to a state nanny, basically. Uh, and every year that authority gets changed. Right now, if your kids are in the public school system, the public school system has more rights over your kids than you do. But that is not the way God set up the, fami the f familial structure. The parents are supposed to be the, the ruling and reigning um, entity over a child's life. Not teachers, not the state. Parents. I mean, um, Dabney even mentions that the the Russian monarch, it, you know, you got to think this is 1870, 1880. Um, so there was still a Russian monarch, uh, the good old days of Russia, basically. Um, based Russia. <laughs> based Russia, exactly. But not even the Russian monarch 
had as has as much authority over his sovereign domain than children or excuse me than parents have over children and and this gets back to the the point he was just making right that this idea of well i'm going to let my children make up their own minds you're you're you know just that that quote right your heart is harder than a boar's a beast that you would neglect your children's souls for your own what your convenience your job this is I, I know some men in the South that think that education is not something a man should be involved in at all. And they've abdicated entirely their responsibility as a father to raise their children upright. And they just say, well, that's a, that's a woman's job. And it's, this, it's just an excuse to get out of your responsibilities as a father. So we, we've harped on education a little bit here, but I think that's really germane to Dabney's point here is that the education that you're giving them is not just this, I'm going to teach you how to do math. It's also that you need to come to Christ and repent of your sins. I'm going to give you the cure for that spiritual sickness that you have because I'm the one who's responsible for it. That love of a parent that he would want to stop his child from suffering from the same sickness that he's suffering from. And in that ultimate to come to Christ and to be glorified when he goes to meet Christ. I think a good end to this podcast will be a quote from Dabney that bookends this section and brings it to a close. He says, There's no power beneath the skies authorized by God that is so far-reaching, so near the prerogatives of God himself. And for that reason, there was none so solemnly responsible. When God has clothed you, O parent, with such powers, with results so beneficent and glorious, and has thus made you so nearly a God to your own children, do you suppose that you can neglect or pervert them without being held to dire account? It were better for that man that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Here appears a new argument to prove man's responsibility for his moral and religious opinions. The code, which he heartily believes is, to him, his authoritative creed. It is to this the privilege of parental inculcation must practically apply. Hence, he who has perverted his own reason and conscience to mistake a lie for the truth makes himself responsible not only for his own destruction, but for the probable destruction of the children God has submitted to his guidance. Take heed then, parents, how you hear and how you believe, not only for your own sakes, but for the sakes of your children. Hey y'all, thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it, and check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, Please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gap. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at SouthernRaisedBluegrass.com. God bless y'all.
Oh, oh, oh.